So just to um, let you know, Mary Grace is a little sick. She's hoping to come back tomorrow. I'm so sorry to convey this news. It's not a, uh, a major thing, but enough, it's enough to keep her from coming. And you know she would really like to be here. And so I'm sorry to convey this. And some of the notes that were addressed to her specifically we're going to save for her. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sorry to pass it on. Maybe we can just take a moment before we even start to just hone in on our lovely purple-haired lady. And just sending her some good vibes. I just love Mary Grace so much. So Marcy and I sorted the questions, and so she's going to answer some, and and I will as well. And you all were very, very prolific. (laughs) The bowl is getting kind of filled up. And so um, I'm sorry to say there's probably no way that we can do them all. We will do the best that we can, so... I ask your forgiveness, mercy as well, if we don't get to your question, um, we apologize. And uh, if it's still burning, even after the end of the retreat, you can perhaps come and find us and we'll, we'll talk. Actually, this was a... I might have to... I think that's as far as it goes. Thank you, Marcy. And I don't want to blind someone, too. Is that... Yeah. Yeah, that, that's... Pr- is that in anyone's eyes? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll be fine with it off. I, I'll, I'll do okay. No, not better. Let's just shut it off. We'll, I'll, I'll work with it. The first thing that I want to mention, actually, uh, this is this, this mentioning it too, is that um, tonight in the Jewish world, this is the um, beginning of the new year, Rosh Hashanah. And so I just want to name that and acknowledge that in our culture, there may be a number of Jews here, or Jew boos, or boo Jews. And... Um, Rosh Hashanah is a time for our the beginning of a, of another year, and um, that notion of beginning again. So maybe we can just pause for a moment and just acknowledge um, Rosh Hashanah. There's something about renewal that is indeed very lovely. When I was a a Buddhist monk, there was a beautiful, probably two-minute ceremony that was done every day with 
the monks. It's called Desana Charme. And a monk uh, that's been in the robes for lesser years will always team up with a monk that has been in the robes more years, so an elder and a younger one. And they would both crouch, and they would do a, like a, just a very short sort of recollection of anything during the day that maybe they did not as skillfully or maybe broke a precept. Or one, you know, they, the monks keep 227 precepts, and this very short ceremony was a, was a renewal of clearing. So perhaps we can just, in that spirit of the, the new year, the sense of beginning again. Someone asked about uh, explaining the deep bow. What does each limb represent? Wonderful question. And um, you may have not seen a, a complete bow, or, or, or yeah, actually, you probably have seen a few. And so, when we are bowing to the Buddha, it's not necessarily to the the object. That's though a representation of the state of awakening. So we can say first and foremost we're paying respects to the state of awakening of the Buddha. But also as Mary Grace was explaining, I mean we can think, consider it for the historical Buddha, but also for that awakening that is the potential seed within everyone and those that have awakened. And so we talk about the prostration is a five-point prostration. Head, two arms, two legs. So the five points represent the Buddha, the awakened, the Dharma, the teachings, the way that it is, the Sangha, the noble community. We are part of that noble community. So that's three. The fourth is paying respects to our mother and father because without them we would not be here. And the fifth is paying respects to our teachers, those that have helped us on to the path to awaken. So it's a very beautiful, so it has, a, it has a real meaning. Awakening, the Dharma, the Sangha, mother and father, and our teachers. I'm going to include Marcy on this. Ah. <laughs> New technology. <laughs> Actually, I, th- I think I'll. Yeah, I think I'll go with it. That's pretty cool. I'm going to tell my wife about that. <laughs> Where'd you get it? No. <laughs> um, so this is uh, actually one addressed to to all of us. Um, From the heart, please tell us why do you still meditate? What is it? What's its current value to you? It's a beautiful question. And um, from my heart, I meditate because it has it has incredibly saved my life. And um, if I hadn't found this practice, I have no idea where I would be and how I'd be dealing with my life. And I shared with you earlier just how lost and confused I was growing up with all these deaths and social unrest and 
um, actually, I think that last night, a lot of my talking from my heart is why I still continue to sit on the cushion because um, I, and it's not just sitting on the cushion. It's really, it's like, it's sitting in my life. Like, like the practice that helps support me to turn into my fear, to my pain, and to hold it in such a way that I can learn it. And it gives me, um, I don't know, I'm just like forever in awe of the, of the Dharma. And it's um, life-fulfilling uh, ways that it feeds me. It feeds me with compassion, feeds me with humility, feeds me with wanting to support kindness and goodness and wisdom and cutting through my selfishness and anger and fear. And I can go on. In the early days, I would say that um, the meditation caused... Um, a type of a change of the brain. And now, of course, with the functional MRIs, it's, it's proving that. So I can certainly say that, you know, all the same reasons. And um, the bottom line is that Without meditation, I'm not the person that I want to be. And uh, it really, it helps, you know, it's the only way to cut through suffering, really, to dig it up from the root. And um, it really feels to me like the the only path to really um, find out who you are and to truly become who you are. And so for me, that's, um, you know, that's, I don't know any other reason to live than that. It's uh, at the center of my life. Want me to go on? Okay. Oh, this is the Mary Grace question. We'll save that for tomorrow. Hopefully she'll... Kind of like Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, it's for Mary Grace. Um, We've been working with our energy in Qigong. Could you discuss how meditation can be energy practice as well? Well, certainly many of you have been reporting in the interviews that, uh, that you're feeling a lot going on energetically in your sitting practice. And, and certainly from a Qigong perspective, uh, we don't need to be moving, physically moving to move the qi. It just helps. It helps open things up. But, um, but we are moving energy no matter what position we're in. And so the posture... Um, changing the posture can change how the energy moves in the body. Changing the hand position can change how the energy moves in the body. And so, um, so oftentimes you'll see these various mudras, hand positions and postures um, that are different. Um, some of the, you know, pic- the different deities are pictured in different postures. And from a Qigong perspective, that's, that's moving qi. It's, uh, you know, so it has a spiritual dimension, but it also has a very physical dimension of, uh, you know, the energies moving in a particular pattern that we're interested in. And so energy's moving all the time in our body. If it weren't, we wouldn't be alive. And so um, what we're interested in with the Qigong is, is balance and flow. 
And so there are certain areas of the body where the energy tends to stagnate. And, um, and sometimes there's areas of the body that have, have too much energy and then areas of the body that are really weak. And we want to smooth out the flow through the body so that there's an even balance of energy in the body. And that's when we feel most comfortable and most healthy and our, function, our organs are functioning at their best. And so um, when you're in your sitting meditation practice, the, the doorway to feeling more sensation is the sensation that is there to be felt. And so um, it may f- not feel very um, exalted to be feeling into your sore knee, but that is actually the pathway <laughs> to feeling more and more and more and these kind of subtle sensations of chi. And so if you ha- go into your sore knee and you really allow your consciousness to, to merge with that experience of the sore knee, then we can breathe into it and kind of feel into it. We can see its com- the component parts of that sensation. You know, we can see that if it, it might be cramping, and in the cramping there's kind of a, a pull and release, and a pull and release. And there becomes, as your awareness settles into the sensation, then you actually start to feel the more subtle sensations of chi in that what feel, felt like at first maybe like a very monolithic or stiff or um, cement-like feeling actually opens to your awareness and then you can feel the more subtle sensations and we can feel the, the different elements in it. We can feel the pressure, we can feel the heat, the coolness, we can feel the fluidity, the movement in, um, in the sensation. And when we're there, we're very much in the realm of chi and sensing into the flow of energy through that sensation. And so it may, from a distance, it may look like um, something that has no flow or seems very static. But when we actually go in there with our concentration and awareness, we can feel that there's a flow. And once we sense into that flow, then we notice that that flow is connected to other flows. And then we begin to be really aware of our energy body and what's happening in the body. And so you're, so um, a lot of doing Qigong on the cushion is really about um, a willingness to feel. A willingness to feel and just um, settling in to what's there to be felt. So how might you handle working with deep-seated resentment? It's a good one. I've always had a lot of uh, admiration for my mother-in-law. She... um, She had a lot of hard things happen in her life. Her husband left her. And just, she had, a, she had some challenges and um, she's since passed away. And I was so touched with this very simple, kind and 
beautiful woman that did not have a lot of self-esteem. She'd been kind of crushed with life at times. But I, I had that deep, deep knowing and sense that when she died, she left this world with no resentment. And I was so impressed and touched with her that I, 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 I was you know, sharing with my like, I, I want to die like Charmaine with no resentment in my life. And she had a lot of reasons to have resentment. And I, I, to me, I think to be able to die without resentment is like getting the PhD of life. You know, like to live with your heart not weighted down. It's difficult to work with uh, the, these pains of resentment of those that have hurt us. And for me, how I, I work with it, and it's amazing when we begin to look at that little book of this person crossed me off here and this one did there. It's like, it's kind of humble pie, you know? Um, well, maybe you don't know, but I know. <laughs> and um, the feelings of hurt, the harboring of resentment. And when I meditate within myself on my own harborings of my own resentment and grudges and ill will and pain... I directly experience suffering. There's just no question about it. I am not a happy camper when I'm filled with resentment. And so one of the ways that I want to begin to work with it is to begin to lessen that heavy weight. Because when you think about it, all the projection is out blaming whoever it is that did whatever they did. But who's the one that's suffering? Who's the one that's suffering? The finger's pointing out, but this other finger's pointing back in, as the saying goes. And it's very interesting. There's a wonderful Buddhist story of the simile of the arrow, where somebody shoots an arrow and gets it into a person's leg. And and the Buddha asks, when you have that arrow in the leg, do you ask what size shoe the archer has on? Do you try to find out what bow the archer shot the arrow from or what type of bow it was, what type of arrow? No, you don't ask any of those questions. That's not important. What's important is an arrow sticking in your leg and you want to pull it out. It hurts. In the same way, when we are experiencing resentment, it is really like that arrow that is stuck in our leg or wherever. We are the ones that are suffering. And so I think it's a very powerful practice for us to work on the, at first, beginning to neutralize the resentments that we may be harboring inside us. Because when we really investigate the texture, the quality of our own health and well-being, our ease of mind and body, when we're in a place of resentment, many of us are not feeling that sense of ease. The heart is hardened. And what's wonderful, I think, also about this practice is that I haven't yet mentioned the word forgiveness. Have you noticed that? That may come later. But at first, let's take care of our own suffering that's inside us. And if we begin to begin to make some movement towards pulling out that arrow, we still haven't we haven't yet dealt with the other person yet, but we're taking care of ourselves in the sense of helping to work with our own heart because we understand that caring resentment is so painful and toxic to our own well-being. So that's one part of it.
that I want to invite you to consider. The other part that I find that is very helpful is that when I examine the times that I've hurt myself or hurt others, as I really bring some awareness. So again, this is, this is why another reason why I love to meditate. I'm getting some understanding of what the heck's going on here. My own pain. But as I begin to understand more, when I, I sometimes like to call this hindsight wisdom. Like when you look back like five years ago and what you did with this person or whatever, and like all of a sudden you see from this perspective five years later, you go, wow, where was I then? And you know, Mary Grace talked about you know, falling in love with another person and all of a sudden later realizing like how deluded I was. Like this is hindsight wisdom. We see later where it is that we were. And often when we look back in this hindsight wisdom, we begin to see that some of the motivating factors of why I lashed out at whoever, or lashed out at myself, that it came from my own unawareness and my own fears. I see more clearly now. And so perhaps even those that have hurt us, that it came from their place of unawareness and their own fears. Not that it makes it right, but it brings some understanding, just as we begin to understand the times that we've been short or hurtful to another, and we begin to own and recognize and acknowledge our part in it, our own fears, our own woundedness that came forth, we can begin to understand that perhaps that is what was coming from the other person. There's a beautiful book, and I'm sorry to say I forget the name of it, but it's by Norman Fisher, who's an American Zen priest, and he's a writer and a poet and a teacher. And, and in this one book, he wrote a kind of a, a Buddhist version of the Book of Psalms to some degree. And what he did was he changed a lot of the language in it. Like any of this, like the old biblical language, there was words like the person was unrighteous, they were evil, they were wicked, they were bad. And he changed all of those words to that they were being heedless. They were being unmindful. And it kind of changes the context. They were unaware. And we talk about in Buddhist psychology that the most deepest root cause of suffering is ignorance, unawareness. And then it's, of course, coupled with greed and hatred. But that root cause is ignorance, is not knowing. And so we have to understand that often these actions come from that place of unawareness perhaps that may begin to set the seeds with more understanding that we can begin to work with this issue of resentment, possibly even leading at some point into forgiveness. But when even we look at the word forgiveness, who is it for? Who is it for, really? It's really our own ability to kind of let go. And it's difficult to let go, but let us acknowledge the feelings that we're feeling, but also investigate. How does it feel to harbor that resentment? The Buddha said that hatred never ceases by hatred. Only love ceases hatred. That this is a universal law. So this is not easy, and I know at times some of what we have um, experienced from others and acts of sometimes incredible violence, it's very difficult to forgive at first or even later. 
but also can we in the spirit of taking care of our own well-being and health, our ease of body and mind to begin to work with that. In some ways I would say that, that resentment is very toxic to our own being. And the importance of beginning to take responsibility in the spirit of our health and well-being to work with alleviating that by acknowledging it, by understanding it came from unawareness and fears. So I'm going to pass it over to Mercy. Okay. The Qigong practice seems to increase blood flow and heat in the body. Is there a Qigong practice which will cool an area which is already hot, such as arthritic hands? Yes. So <laughs> there, are, um, there are heating Qigong movements and there are cooling Qigong movements. And, um, and you know, if you are to work with a Qigong teacher one-on-one or... Um, or a Qigong therapist, they can show you these different moves and specific to whatever condition that you're working with. But, um, but as your Qigong practice deepens, uh, you'll be able to sense which movements do what. And so I'm a big fan of the do-it-yourself approach and, uh, and feeling, feeling what are you doing, how is it reacting in your body, and uh, and starting to build sort of an internal qigong lexicon, so you start to see, ah, oh, okay, this one's for this, this one's for that. Then you can start to self-prescribe. Try to do another qigong question. Please explain how medical qigong relates to Buddhism, or other spiritual practice in China historically and currently. Also, please tell us about how you came to qigong as a healing practice and a spiritual practice. Wow, it could take all night. Um, well, uh, Qigong is uh, I think Qigong really predates um, the rest of Chinese medicine, except perhaps herbology. It's um, there. There are pictographs uh, depicting uh, some of these moves that are seven thousand years old, and so it's a very old practice in China and, um, and goes back into the roots. And some of the um, early Qigong uh, movements that I've studied are really very similar to Native American shamanistic practices. And so like that shaking we were doing is really old, old Qigong. And so it's, you know, I think it comes from the earth. It really comes from the root. It comes from a time when uh, people lived very, very close to the land and we're very in tune with the cycles of nature. And I think that the evolution of um, Chinese medicine as we know it today, uh, with the meridian system and the acupoints and all of that, really grew out of the insights that came through the practice of Qigong and, um, and working with uh, native herbs. And so um, Qigong already existed by the time Buddhism uh, came to China. And so uh, as, as um, Buddhism came and um, influenced uh, China, so did, you know, it's sort of 
the same time yoga was coming up uh, from India. So Buddhism was coming up from India, yoga was coming up from India. And so there are styles of Qigong that are very yoga-like too because it, they've had that influence from India. And so um, there's the, the world of Qigong is extremely diverse. And so I keep saying, if you don't like one style, try another because there's probably one that you will like. Um, but in, but it, it was taken in to the temple, certainly the Taoist um, temples, as they were forming into uh, organizations, and were, it was always there, a big part of the Taoist um, world, and then also the Buddhist temples as well. And in some um, Buddhist temples, the Shaolin Temple in particular is famous for their martial arts, and so it kind of took it in that direction. And so um, they, were, they were training spiritual warriors as well as... Um, Warrior warriors, uh, and so uh, so these practices were used to build energy for whatever it is that you wanted to do with it. And so, for some people, that would be um, their in, increasing energy for their meditation practices and for that 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 sense of connection with um, the universe. And for others, it was put toward fighting or healing. And so, these are kind of how the the three main branches of qigong formed. And so the Buddhist style Qigong tends to remain largely in monasteries. And so we don't see that as much uh, taught. What, mostly what we see is Taoist style Qigong. Um, but you can tell the Buddhist style from the Taoist style because the Buddhist style is much more um, linear and less movement. And so um, Taoist style is all those swirls and circles and figure eights and the buddhist style would be like that uh, three palms together one that's it from a tibetan buddhist teacher and that the bone marrow washing which my teacher added a few spirals to just to make it more open but that washing so you'll know the buddhist style qigong because they make you very quiet and so great for preparation for sitting and so, um, so, you know, you can probably tell me what effect it's having on your spiritual practice after having done it for several days. It's uh, a, a wonderful exploration. So this is a, a combination of a few questions around the 32 parts. Uh, one question is why is the parts of the body rarely taught in the West? Why is it really taught? And is that just in the West? And um, and another question is that I want to uh, work with this practice at home and what would be the best method? Uh, what would you suggest? And the last is, because um, I'll answer these three together. Notice that the mind is not on the list of the 32. Can you tell me where the mind is located? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but it's actually very interesting to say that in, in Buddhist psychology, uh, it's often referred to that the mind is seated in the heart, with a sense impression. But I, I'm going to kind of combine these three questions to some degree. And um, 
it is it, it is rarely taught in the West, and even in the East, it's not that much practice. It's mostly been practiced in the forest traditions. Um, it, it's very traditional when a monk or nun gets ordained, when they're first shaving the person's head, they recite the parts of the body as part of the ceremony. And you may find in many monasteries where the monks or the nuns chant the parts, but in very few monasteries are they actually practicing very intensively these parts of the body practice. Um, why that is, I don't know, but I know that, it, um, that there's different orientations to meditation, different uh, aspects of practice. And I, I just happened, um, well, I don't know if I'd say I just happened, it was my karma my good karma, to uh, meet Tungpu Luciado, who was a Burmese forest meditation master, and he was like really into the 32 parts of the body. And so um, so that that's where I learned it. But when I speak with a number of my other friends and colleagues that have uh, traveled to Asia and studied with other masters, uh, very few of them have had any exposure to this practice. And so consequently, it's, that's why it's even more rare to find it here in, in the West. And as I mentioned to you the other night, uh, just working on and off of this practice, it, it, it took, again, like about 26 years to like, whoa, wait a minute, this is really something. And um, I've been very impassioned about it ever since. I feel like I want to be the Johnny Appleseed of the 32 parts of the body meditation. <laughs> Just because it, I, I, you know, I, I hold that the, these four foundations of mindfulness, these teachings of the Buddha are priceless and a treasure. And um, you know, there's a sense of not um, wanting to uh, expose and practice all of these different foundations. So within the body, as we mentioned, there's the mindfulness of the breathing, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of the day-to-day activities of, of life, and then there's the 32 parts of the body meditation, the meditation on the four elements, and then the meditations on death. And, you know, I feel like the, you know, the Buddha outlined these as primary practices, and I would love to see them all flourish and be practiced. And I myself have benefited incredibly, immensely through doing these practices. So I feel like... Um, you know, in, in whatever way I can to help um, to bring these other practices out that aren't practiced so often, it, that it could be very helpful for a number of us. And if, I, as I mentioned too the other night, that I think that the 32 parts of the body that a number of people, particularly in the West, have kind of shied away from it because when we look at a lot of the, uh, the canonical texts, not all of them, but there's definitely a body of literature that uses the 32 parts as a way to help curb passions and desire. And, and the emphasis is, is kind of seen through the lens of the loathsome, the repulsive, the disgusting aspects of the body. <laughs> Does that go over well with you all or what? And... Um, from my and I think part of it is to help to break this attachment with the body, and, and it, the, these approaches to practice may serve some, and it may not serve others. And from our perspective, 
teaching this practice from a very neutral standpoint. It's, it's, in some ways, it's just very matter-of-fact, very clinical, and we're just presenting the information as it is, and it's up to us. You know, some of us maybe going through these parts may have experienced some sense of rev- repulsion. Other of us might have discovered mysteriousness and mystery. And, 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 but we are, I feel like what I want to do is present it in a way that's very neutral and matter-of-fact, and of course, there's a body of literature in the text that speak about using this practice in that similar way as using it as a practice to uh, disclose the true nature of the body as it interrelates with the elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature, uh, using it as an insight practice. And so this is the perspective that I feel has been the most helpful for me. And of course, working with a number of people, this is our I think our fourth year here at Spirit Rock, we introduce, we do this retreat once a year, and and the feedback has been fairly well um, as far as working with this practice. There was a question about why isn't the mind in the list, and of course there were some other questions like why these 32 and why this order, and I had addressed that in uh, my first talk, and just briefly, like we don't know why this order, why these arrangements, why these particular parts. And again, from my point of view, these are the parts that the Buddha talked about nearly 2,600 years ago. And I consider them to really be portals, ambassadors into the body. And so these are uh, just gateways, doorways. And, and of course, there's so many parts that aren't mentioned, but as we get into one part, of course, they're all interrelated and interconnected. And so if other parts arise, they're to be included. As far as the question, too, about the mind, and again, um, what I find is one of the most helpful ways to work with the 32 parts of the body is not only are we trying to sense into that area, but perhaps most importantly is paying attention to what it evokes inside us, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our mind. And so you can say that the mind is very much involved in this practice because what we're working, the emphasis is to feel and to sense into that body part and be aware of what it evokes in our heart. Just as I mentioned earlier about this one woman sharing with us, she, as she was being with her head here and the memory and grief and sweetness arose of her dying grandmother stroking her here. So that's an evoking as we're staying with the body part. It's evoking our lives because again, our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse everything from the moment of our conception until our death we this is inhabited with a consciousness and this body and so this practice is moving into the body and being mindful of what's present physically of course but also in our heart our emotions what it brings up so that needs to be included and acknowledged as part of the practice as far as doing the practice, on those handouts I gave you, I actually created a website, 32parts.com. And <laughs> uh, anyways, with the help of a dear friend who's a techno wizard, it's um, 
quite a website that actually can walk you through how to do this practice for a long term. And you can actually click a body part and then out will come a picture. We got those from Google Images. It's actually a picture of, of uh, mucus from a kid with a whole bunch of snot going down his nose. You'll, you'll, you'll be entertained with some of the, the photographs that, <laughs> that I have. Um, they're all there. <laughs> they're all there. And... Um, but anyways, in, in that website, it actually gives these descriptions that we've been offering to you. Those, those descriptions are in there. Um, how it can be practiced in a number of ways. And of course, we're doing a, a week long with it. But uh, actually, starting next Friday, I'll be entering my sixth year of doing an a, 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 a eight-month practice, 33 weeks. And... In the website, it will actually walk you through how to do a 33-week practice. The first week, you're working with the parts in one direction, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. The next week, you're working them reverse, skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. The next week, you're working with it forward and backwards, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. Where it's zigzagging all the way through. It actually takes eight months to complete this. And essentially, uh, as in... There's, so there's instructions on the website on how to work with it. And typically what I'm suggesting is to sit anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes a day doing this practice. And you could start off with some mindfulness of breathing and then particularly honing in on the parts that you're working on for that week. And again, that honing in on is concentrating on that part, sensing into it, being mindful of what is arising physically, mentally, emotionally, staying present to what's here in your heart. And then ending each practice with a little bit of some loving kindness practice. And this is the piece that I think is very incredibly important. Many of us in the West have a lot of um, challenges at times in our relationship with our bodies. And you know, we look in the mirror and we have a few comments here and there or more. And so we also, from our point of view, and you know, the Buddha, he wasn't enlightened out of the body. He was enlightened in his body, in his fathom-long body. That's where the enlightenment took place. This fathom-long body lies our world, our life, our death, and our pathway to great freedom. It's within the body. And so I think it's very important to not have a negation of the body, but to understand its true nature as we work with this practice and to also to end the meditation with a sense of gratitude that this is the vehicle that I live inside of and my pathway to greater awakening and, and may, may I honor this body and care for it. But may also, in some sense, it's breaking some of the spell of, the word I'd like to use is of, it's breaking the spell of enchantment in, in the sense of uh, we're beginning to see it as it really is. Again, head here, you come home from your haircut and it's like, oh no, it's a bummer again. But the, remind yourself, Hardened cells protruding from the head, thread-like outgrowths from the skins of mammals. This is what it really is. (laughs) One of the questions um, that we received is... uh, Please explain how meditation can aid in recovery from addictions or compulsive behaviors. 
And um, one of the ways, you know, is as you're, if you're using the 32 parts or you're doing a mindfulness of body practice, then you can actually, as you befriend your body, uh, you know, like Bob's story the other night, it's like, well, no more cremation because he doesn't want to harm those little critters in there. And so you become, you become very, you know, protective of your body because it's, it's so amazing, you know. And so you just, you know, and there are all these beings that live in there and you become, they're kind of like your friends. And so, so that, you know, as you befriend your body and be, you begin to love these different parts of your body that perhaps you had never even considered, then it becomes kind of, um, any kind of self-abusive behavior, uh, becomes intolerable because you just won't let your friends be treated that way. You know, and so, you know, it's that, that's, that's part of, you know, this, this process, I think. Um, on, in another way, whatever practice we're doing within the realm of mindfulness is developing the, the skills of concentration and sensory clarity as we're feeling into these different parts and through that um, equanimity as we befriend these parts and we kind of become more patient with our pain or difficulties. And so that makes us less reactive. And so we, when we're more equanimous and more clear, we become less reactive. And so when, when something is um, bothering us or we have some kind of uh, trauma or stress, we're less likely to go running to a substance or a behavior um, to try and solve it. And we're much more likely to actually just turn inward and, and be present with it, you know, and feel into it and be, you know, apply that patience, apply that equanimity, you know, and, and go into the experience of um, the sensations that are involved. And as we develop the, the equanimity and the concentration and the sensory clarity, um, we, we can apply that to... Basically, we begin to have insight. And as we study the Dharma, we can, um, we can bring that insight and, and that new clarity of vision to the teachings themselves. And so it would be you know, another hour-long talk, at least, for me to go into the chain of dependent origination. But there's a teaching that um, basically outlines, okay, you know, this happens first, this happens second, this happens third, and we can kind of follow the chain, you know, from, okay, there, there's an aversion, and then there's a craving, and then there's a clinging, and then there's an... I mean, it, it describes how addictive behaviors manifest. And on some level, even just, you know, obsessive thinking or, you know, can be considered an addictive behavior. So it kind of really describes a lot of just, you know, basically how phenomena uh, comes to manifest. And once we become aware of that, we can, any point along that chain that we're aware of can break the chain. And so any place that we become clear and we see clearly then we can stop the rest of the chain from manifesting by just simply bringing awareness to that part of the chain. And so in this retreat and many Vipassana retreats, um, we, we spend a little bit of time talking about the Vedana, the, um, you know, the aversion, the feeling tones, 
Thank you. I'm using the poly, the feeling tones, and so talking about the the uh, the grasping, or the the greed, and the aversion, and um, and 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 sort of the neutral territory, and that is a great place to look if you're concerned about addiction, because if you can sense into an aversion, like you're having an experience, you don't want to be having this experience. If you can feel into the aversion and bring your attention to the aversion and actually sense into it, like I was saying, you can sense into any body sensation, anything that's going on, then you don't need to run away. Because you won't need to go through the rest of the chain of going to you know, the booze or whatever it is that, that, that your addictive behavior is. You don't need to find the next girlfriend. You don't need to, I mean, you can actually just be present with that feeling and experience that feeling fully. And in the full experience, uh, in a complete experience of whatever, there's tremendous satisfaction. And once you feel that satisfaction of being fully present with your experience, then you don't need to go off and do that other stuff. And so maybe maybe you don't notice the Vedana, maybe you don't notice the aversion, and you're often running in the direction of getting whatever addictive substance or behavior. But when you notice that you're doing that, you can also work backwards. You can say, oh, where was the aversion? Or where was the clinging? And see if you can trace it back to that event in, in your inner experience. And so you, it's never too late to stop. It's just easier to stop if you catch it earlier on in the chain. And so there are many different ways that the Dharma can support um, and the practice of meditation can support um, releasing these addictive behaviors um, and many doors that we can walk through. It's very, very supportive. Yeah, actually, my teacher, Tampulucero, used to give a very short version of dependent origination. He says, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. And so this knowing is what can begin to break the cycle of our patterns. And it is difficult. There actually is a, a therapy for those of you that are interested. It's called Mindfulness-Based Relapse and Prevention and this was developed by Alan Marlette and some other um, colleagues that are using mindfulness as a way of working with, with addiction. So, um, this is a nice question. Because sometimes following the breath, this might actually be the last one, sometimes following the breath closely feels like a means of repressing thoughts and feelings and how do I open to practice how do I open to this how do I work with this and still concentrate and um, this is a good question and you know when we're working with concentration meditation the object is to really become at one with your object so in some sense, subject and object in later stages even disappears. There's just this penetration at being at one with the object. That takes a lot of practice to prime that type of pump. And from there, you can move into stages of absorption, 
and deeper levels of absorption. In Pali, it's called jhanas. There's different degrees of jhanas. These are meditative absorptions born out of oneness of mind, of stillness of mind, steady mind. And when we're in these very concentrated states of mind, all of our greed, hatred, and ignorance, sometimes in, well, in Pali is called the kilesas, they are momentarily suppressed because our concentration is brighter and it's just sustaining itself on the object, so not much arises. But of course, uh, when we stop doing those types of practices, if we haven't cultivated much insight, they come right back again, these kilesas. It's greed, hatred, and ignorances. And so in our practice, and the focus in this retreat has been to develop some concentration, but also to develop some insight, some understanding of what is fueling and driving our own greed, hatred, and ignorance. So we're developing our concentration, but also equally trying to develop some insight. Now, I'll tell you a story that maybe pertains to this question more, because the question is, I, sometimes I'm following the breath closely, but it f- feels like I'm suppressing, repressing thoughts and feelings. And sometimes we come to a fork in the road and we have to discern, should I just stay with the breath, or do I move towards that feeling? And so I want to just tell you a, another story. There was a a number of years ago, I was having a conversation on the phone with a a hospital administrator about mindfulness, and I was getting really angry. And I looked at my watch, like, oh, I have to get off because I have to go teach a meditation class. So I got off the phone, fortunately without burning the bridge. And I went into the meditation room, and this was actually at the hospital, and started leading the practice, inviting people to be with the breath, and I started to be mindful of my breath, and that lasted about two seconds. And the thought arose, when I get done with this meditation, I'm going to call her up and really let her have it. Oh, wandering mind, come back to the breath. And I kept on trying to stay with the breath, and another thing I'm going to do, and another thing I'm going to do, and another thing I'm going to do. This was happening repeatedly. These feelings were 9.5 on the internal emotional Richter scale of my heart. There was no being with the breath here. What was really happening was I was angry. I was really angry inside. And so sometimes we come to a fork in the road and this is not, what I'm just going to describe here is not like a psychological inquiry or a analysis. But what I realized, and just like you know, the Buddha working with Mara, like, I see you, Mara, and my Mara that was visiting me big time was anger. And I had to just acknowledge that anger was my object. I see you, anger. And I allowed myself just to, you know, I, I realized there's no way I can be with the breath, I just have to be with the anger. And occasionally my mind would go off, like, and then I'm going to do this to this person. Oh, wait a minute, come back, come back. Just the feeling, this anger. That's what was there. 
anger, anger, anger. I see you, anger. And as I sat with the anger, something shifted and all of a sudden I began to feel very, very sad. And there was this feeling of not being understood, not being seen, not being heard. And as I, then I just let myself experience that and that after a while there was this you know, reflection that came over. What is this about that somehow I have to be heard or seen by this person and why can't I be okay with who I am? I mean, it led, it was like this journey deeper into my woundedness of the pain of just at times feeling that, uh, that I wasn't heard in my life and acti- you know, like that was really what was being activated here was this deep wound of not being seen not being heard, not being acknowledged. And so I think I want to just offer that sometimes when we are with the practice and if it seems like we keep on pushing away these feelings because I have to be with the breath, I have to be with the breath, if our goal is to get very concentrated, then maybe we are in some sense uh, needing to exert that effort. But if we're also trying to um, be present with what's really in our hearts, we may, in this fork of the road, discern, you know, I think I may need to be with this feeling. Not to analyze it, not to figure it out, but just to name it, to acknowledge it, to feel it. And sometimes uh, other things arise in the midst of that. Perhaps you've already been doing this very naturally in, in this week of practice already. Something's come up and you just sense inside yourself, you know you need to be present to that. Maybe this ends with uh, the la- one of the last um, of the questions just right on top about um, how do we begin to befriend ourselves in our practice, in our lives. And perhaps it begins with this sense of can I begin to befriend this part of myself that I have disowned, not honored. I love that line in the Derek Walcott poem, Love After Love, where it says, all your life whom you've ignored for another. All your life whom you've ignored for another. And he goes on to say, the time will come and with elation you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door and in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome, and you'll love again the stranger who is yourself, giving back your heart to itself. This is a very difficult practice, giving back our heart to ourselves. I've talked with a number of you, and I know that we all understand intellectually what befriending means, what loving kindness means, what forgiveness means, what all these different qualities. But it's another thing to have them come into our hearts, and sometimes it's akin to, and you know, it's kind of a funny metaphor for a guy to be saying, but um, I make it akin to birthing in the sense that we're you know as far like how do we discover what how do we discover compassion for ourselves and so we really are entering in when we're working with this as a practice it's really entering into a labor and we're contracting we're trying to like what does it mean to experience to feel compassion and there's a sense of 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 labor and i but i what i believe is that through that labor 
And, and it's kind of like, you know, when one is blind, we have to use the brit with the cane, with the feel our way into this. And it's through that laborious practice of the expansion, the contraction, feeling into the place of befriending that we discover the birth of that befriending. It's through our labor in, in trying to work with experiencing that. So I want to invite you to all be in labor, except for you, because you, you said you're only six months. She's not ready yet. <laughs> She's been meditating on two sets of head here, buddy, here in LC skin. <laughs> but there's a sense of, uh, of this, you know, if we're struggling with befriending, stay in the struggle. Labor into it. What does it mean to open and to experience it for ourselves? This is our, this is our practice. This really is our practice. And through that practice, we may discover our heart is there. The time will come and with elation, you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door and mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and you will love again this stranger who is yourself. It's from Derek Walcott. So I'll just end with a reading. This is from Kabir, and I just love this poem. And perhaps this is um, befriending. That's this is. Uh, we're looking for befriending. So the poem goes, Are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. But you'll not find me in the stupas. You'll not find me in the shrine rooms, nor in the synagogues or the cathedrals. Not in the masses, not in the curtains, not in legs winding around your own neck not in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. Not in the stupas, not in the Indian shrine rooms, not in the synagogues, not at Spirit Rock, not in cathedrals, not in the masses, not in the curtains, not in the qigong, not in the legs with the yoga around your neck, not in eating vegetables. But when you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. So some walking, or if you feel like you... 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.